Hi, this is the Reverend Andrew Christensen. You're listening to Doth Protest Too Much. We are a Christ-centered, reformationally-minded podcast that explores the history and theology of the Christian church. This podcast originally started as a forum for discussing the developmental history of Christian thought, what is often called historical theology. And it has since grown into an ecumenical team of hosts, myself, Stephen Burnett, Pastor Charlie Beeman, and the Reverend James Rickenbaker. We're all interested in the past, present, and future of the church. We share a commitment to the central place that grace has in the message of the good news, a message we feel often gets lost in our day and age, sometimes in religion itself. A message that is of God's goodwill toward us is echoed in the following words from St. Paul. This is a true saying and worthy of all men to be received, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief one. I pray that the discussions in our episodes, whether casual or scholarly, can speak to how the story and witness of Christians from our past can comfort and strengthen us for today. God bless. Welcome back to Doth Protest Too Much, a Protestant historical theology podcast. If you've not already, please, um, however you listen to us, whether it's through Apple or another streaming service, and you're able to give our show a rating, please do so. Please go and uh, give us uh, however you, how many stars you honestly feel we deserve. And uh, we, we want to get uh, somewhat of a percentage of, of the viewership that Joe Rogan Experience has. I think that's the name of Joe Rogan's show, so. Um, anyways, uh, we are back and we are back here with um, Zach Neubauer, who's the president of EFAC Evangelical Fellowship in the Anglican Communion, the USA group of EFAC. Um, interestingly, uh, we've actually, interestingly, we, we've had a, an episode recently about their last conference where uh, our friend Jacob Bauma Sims came on and talked about that. Um, I went to the uh, conference last year for EFAC because I'm a member and I, I did an episode on here about it. And Zach's also been on the show as well uh, about, I don't know, how long ago was that, Zach? Like, just I think just over a year ago um, because yeah. I was still in Georgia and now I'm in California. And we've been out in California for just over a year. So, yeah. And um, I want to hear a little bit about what your ministry is looking like out there. Um, I know we haven't connected uh, in a while on that, but. Uh, yeah, so Zach is the president of EFAC, and he yeah it was one of our first episodes for Dolph Protest. I think it was our fifth or sixth episode. Right, we came yeah. on, and in that episode, we we kind of like define broadly what what it means to be an evangelical in Anglicanism. So, uh, not that they're not a, that it's like its own denomination, but I guess it's a culture uh, or a group, a subgroup within Anglicanism that. Uh, that go that that are comfortable with the word evangelical. I know a lot of our culture is not comfortable with that word right now. Um, and we we explain you know what that was, and we touched back on it in other episodes. Uh, 
as well. And so um, with that ground kind of laid already, um, we're going to get a little bit into uh, Zach's uh, interests, some of his influences, some of the uh, um, some authors, uh, both the present and past, uh, who uh, Zach feels and, and, you know, we all feel um, have uh, are, are important for for to look to for, you know, guidance um, and to be theologically informed as as Anglicans. And uh, so, Zach, hi, welcome back. And James is here with us, too, man. I didn't mention that James is with us. And so we got three of us on the show. Should make for good conversation. Zach, how's your um, how is California and your life and ministry since we last talked? Yeah, California's uh, pretty good. We're in uh, I'm out in the Episcopal Diocese of Northern California, which is geographically a huge diocese. I'm basically everything north of San Francisco, all the way to Oregon border, um, all the way to Nevada, all the way to the Pacific coast. So uh, at the very southern end of it right now, um, and uh, family attends the parish in Sonoma, but I've just become the part-time priest in charge at a parish um, closer to Sacramento, which is about an hour or so. So it's uh, it's it requires a little bit of creativity, um, and um, but it's something that I was willing to undertake, and the diocese was willing to let me do, and the parish was um, happy to work with it. So just started that um, first official Sunday was uh, two weeks ago. So um, yeah, new life and uh, enjoying our time out here. So and it's good to good to see you again, Drew, and um, and to have be be with you guys and to uh see see james through the computer screen uh, right. Right, a lot yeah. of interaction on facebook and whatnot but uh good to finally actually uh, see each other and be chatting with each other so absolutely yeah. Yeah. And, and uh james i i know I, I i imagine you intend to at some point uh experience uh, an efac uh gathering and so it's a uh, it's really great i had a good experience i mean i regretfully couldn't come to the last conference but um the first one, I just felt very uplifted. Um, I felt like, um, oh, what's the word to say? Not that it, it felt good to be around clergy and lay people alike, um, both from the Episcopal Church and ACNA. There's not many settings where you'll have people from both of those groups having you know genuine fellowship and worshiping together and discussing the church together um so that that part alone was was uplifting but also just um that uh that the the gospel of grace the gospel of uh jesus christ which saves us from our own selves who are our worst enemies <laughs> that's uh to hear yep. to, to know that that is such a central emphasis for that group in um in a wider church culture where gospel can unfortunately mean something very different and even antithetical to that um, for some others. Um, it was such a ray of hope for me uh, to see that. And so um, uh, Zach, you, you were coming on to talk about, yeah, some of your interests, like we just mentioned, and we're going to start with a historical figure, Charles Simeon, um, James and I, before our ups, we both kind of talked about, what would be on this episode. And we're kind of, we're both ignorant when it comes to a lot of um, more recent evangelical Anglicanism. Uh, funny enough is even though we both consider ourselves in ways evangelicals or we're, we're very stuck in the reformation a lot, uh, James yeah. and I, 
we, we just don't want to move past the 16th century. We live in the past. So, uh, but, but I, I know you, you mentioned Charles Simeon's is, is kind of in a way an important bridge from uh, the Reformation to uh, really the, the modern evangelicalism in, Angl- in, uh, in the Anglican church. So uh, tell us a little bit about him. What, what, what are some of the ins? I mean, we could do some biographical stuff, but I guess you could give a brief overview, but also just what are some insights that he brings and why he resonates with you and why you think he's so important? I mean, just I get, go ahead and take it away on that. Yeah, no, I think, uh, thank, thanks. That's, that's a great intro. And, um, yeah, definitely, definitely. I feel that, um, the Reformation is, is sorely underlooked within kind of global <laughs> Anglicanism and, and we need to start there as, um, uh, I mean, so many would argue, well, the, the church was in England before the Reformation. And yes, that is true, but the church of England doesn't start until the Reformation. Um, I would, I would, strongly contend that. And, um, so, um, and consider myself very much a Cranmerian, um, another one of my Thomas Cranmer, another one of my heroes. And, but, but also seeing how we, how we get to where we're at today, um, both, both positively and, and negatively, um, as I mean, uh, I think we're well aware that, um, that our very any whatever jurisdiction we're in, uh, I got a lot of a lot of warts, a lot of a lot of issues, just like any other denomination. But mm-hmm. I think it's important to own a lot of that. Um, so you have Charles Simeon, and he uh, he's he's born in 1759, so kind of the middle of the 18th century. Um, I mean, if you think about the Book of Common Prayer in 16, uh, 1662 edition. Maybe being uh, the the closing the the bookend on the Reformation um, period of of the Church of England, so he's coming along about a hundred years after that, and and you I, I, you see the Church of England kind of settling in a little bit more, um, and the Elizabethan settlement. I mean, we have that's a, that's the phrase. I mean, so we're kind of getting trying to get along and trying to get used to each other and, and moving forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and Simeon comes along and he is, he's born to a wealthy family. Um, he, he goes to Eton. I mean, one of the most prestigious, prestigious, they wouldn't let me into Eton talking like that prestigious uh, schools in, in England, and then goes off to King's college, Cambridge and where he, where he studies and it's in his uh, first year at King's College. Um, you're still in that point of point of time where, in order to attend Oxford and Cambridge, you have to be in the Church of England. Um, you have to be a faithful communicant. You have to be um, signing off on the Thirty Nine Articles. And uh, so Charles Simeon is going and realizes that he's going to have to take communion on Easter Sunday. Um, so he grows up in a family that's um, not very religious. And, and so for the first time, he's kind of asking some spiritual questions about what it means to take communion. And um, he says in his autobiography or biography, he says um, he, he feels that the devil himself is, is more able to take communion than, than he is. Uh, that's how, how uncomfortable he is with it. And so he spends a few weeks reading and studying and trying to convince himself that he should go forward for communion. 
and um, and has uh, what what we might call a conversion experience. I mean, ha- has that realization that uh, Christ has been given for him. It's not his uh, his worthiness is not why he comes to the table, but because of Christ's worthiness. And so he does that, and uh, that's in seventeen seventy nine. And so 1782, he becomes a deacon, uh, he's ordained, and, and as, as part of that, what I'll call a conversion experience, I recognize that might not be the best term, or, or maybe different people would understand that term different ways, but um, what comes of that conversion experience is, is a change of heart and is a, a lively faith. There you go. There's a Reformation term for you. Um, and, and so he's... Um, He's embracing uh, scripture. He's embracing the prayer book. And um, so he's going forward for ordination, but he doesn't see anybody else around like him. Um, you have uh, you have enthusiasts um, during that time, um, those members of churches that usually fall outside the Church of England. And um, so he's in some ways resembles these enthusiasts who are preaching for conversion and, and whatnot but he's committed to staying within the church of England and he actually goes and I, I, I can't find the text of it. I was trying to find it as before we got started, but he actually takes out an ad in the newspaper uh, wherein he describes his conversion experience. And he says, this is who I am. This is my theology. If there is any clergyman in the entire church of England who agrees with me, I will come and be your curate for free. Um, that's his, He's, he can't find, can't find anybody else, anybody else like him. Um, he eventually has a curacy and um, he, he is placed at uh, Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge. And, and it's a weird situation because he's there technically as, as a curate. Um, and so maybe for those who aren't familiar with that term, um, he's, he, yes, he's an ordained, he's ordained, um, as a deacon, but, um, still waiting to be ordained as a priest. Um, and usually you'd be working underneath another priest to kind of help you with that transition. Um, he's given the run of the place to by to himself and which sets up some, some conflict with his parishioners, um, because he's not technically the, the vicar of the church. Um, he doesn't have keys. And so the, uh, the senior warden locks him out of the church building. That's how opposed to this message uh, that they, they are to him. Um, he, he's not easily defeated. And so, well, f- first they, uh, they lock the pew doors. So they still enclose pews um, that you would, families would either buy or rent um, and that they have locks on the outside. So first the congregation takes to not coming to church and then locking the pew doors so that no one else can come to church to hear him preach. Um, and so he goes and gets some benches and sets them up in the aisle of the nave so that people can still come to church without sitting in the pews. And that's when the senior warden then says, okay, we're just going to lock the door so you can't get into the building. Um, and it's um, incredibly, he, he continues on. Um, I, I think I would have given up at that point. But he continues on and um, has an experience almost 10 years later, uh, we're still at the parish, where he he passes someone in the street and they say hello to him. 
one of his parishioners. And he, and he writes in his journal that night, just how overjoyed he is that one of his parishioners saw him and acknowledged him on the street. Hmm. <laughs> so um, not, not an auspicious start, but he, he ends up staying at Holy Trinity Cambridge for 55 years um, and, and preaching the gospel, seeing lives changed. And um, out of that, some of what happens, um, he, um, he uh, helps found the Church Missionary Society, one of the very first missionary societies, um, sends one of his, uh, one of the folks that had, one of the gentlemen who worked under him to India to be a missionary in India. He sets up what he calls conversation parties, where um, he invites uh, especially young uh, college men into, into his home. And they discuss what it means to be a priest and, and to what it means to preach the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, he's also one of the uh, big voices behind the push for Bible so- the Bible societies. So um, printing and distributing uh, copies of scripture freely to people, both in England and abroad. And um, one, of, one of the just very smart things he does. And I'm not sure if if many listeners will be familiar with this, but um, there's a practice within the church of England um, called uh, patronage. And what happens is that in a given parish, the uh, each, each parish in the church of England, each, um, each geographical area that has a church associated with it has a patron. And this, it's a, I won't go into all the details, but essentially the patron is usually a wealthy member of the community and they are allowed to put names forward to the bishop um, to fill, fill a vacancy as, in, as the church, uh, the, the vicar, or what we might call a rector. And, and um, back in Simeon's time, there was money to be made um, as, as a patron. You could sell your patronage to another person. And um, so what Simeon does is in a time when these patronages are not seen to have a lot of value because no one really cares who the vicar is, uh, he buys up um, almost 42 of these uh, patronages, which gives him the right to put a name forward for uh, the vicar in these diff- 42 different parishes. And, um, and so, so the combination of all these things of being in a college town like Cambridge, training and raising up um, young men who uh, become clergy, and then having the right or the, uh, the ability to put forward these young men for positions in the Church of England lead give him a, um, ultimately an immense, um, um, I can't think of the word for it. Lots, um, just allows him to do a lot in the church of England, um, by the time that he influenced that's the word I'm thinking of. So it gives him uh, tons of influence by the time he, uh, time of his death. And so, um, so yeah, this influence isn't just limited to his lifetime, but continues to be felt outside of well, long, long past uh, his death. And so even today, uh, Church Society, um, the, an organization in the Church of England that um, some of your listeners may be familiar with, 
they um, still hold, um, he, he leaves these patronages in trust to an organization that eventually becomes Church Society. And now Church Society has um, purchased more, um, and I think are up to hundred and almost 150 parishes where they have uh, the patronage at. Wow. And so the rules, the rules have changed. It's not as, um, not as helpful as it was in Simeon's time, but, um, as, uh, the, uh, evangelist J John, uh, church of England evangelist puts it, he said, uh, Charles Simeon made posterity a priority. Um, mm-hmm. he was really thinking not just about what could be accomplished in his lifetime and not just about what could be accomplished by him, but, but what might be accomplished by others um, well after his lifetime. Right. Yeah. It, it, there's a narrative I hear when, I mean, you mentioned how uh, you kind of rehearse some of the history or give an overview of the history leading up to the time of Simeon. And there's a narrative I hear a lot that, you know, the church of England um, was kind of in a, too much of a settled place, maybe a complacent place, um, you know, during that period of like, I guess the 18th century. Um, I, I think it's important to, I mean, very few times in the, in Anglican history has Anglicanism ever been at peace. Uh, you know, it's forged in the English reformation. Um, yep. and then for the period of a hundred, hundred years, uh, there's these different warring parties within the church of England. And then you have, of course, the issue Richard Hooker dealt with, with uh, separatists and, and Puritans that uh, wanted to reform the Church of England farther, uh, or, or not reform it necessarily, but take it in directions, <laughs> uh, reforming, yeah, but but take it in directions that, um, that uh, others did not, uh, others did not want to see. So uh, you have like a lot of like, I'm sure settlement was in a way welcome. Uh, I know you get like, and you mentioned the Elizabethan settlement, which is of course the official name we give uh, or that was given to, you know, the church of England, finally, you know, coming up with formularies and customs and um, defining what it was. But um, I can, you know, the general narrative I hear, and I'm sure there's, it's basically true is that, yeah, by the time that, uh, the 18th century is in full motion. Um, the church is not in full motion. It's just kind of uh, it's high and dry. It's uh, it's uh, e- emotionless. Uh, you know, I don't know if you've heard this kind of narrative of Anglican history of 18th century Anglicanism. Um, and Wesley is usually seen as like a energetic force that wakes up yep. Anglicanism and with his Methodist movement, but is, is that kind of, is, is, um, Simeon kind of, a seen that way too, is kind of, a uh, a burst of energy onto the scene. Um, yeah. So, I mean, he's, he's not alone. I mean, that's, that's a good connection, um, with the Wesleys. I mean, the Wesleys come, um, uh, before him, mm-hmm. but it's still, I mean, it's, it's part of the, it's part of the um, Great Awakening movement. I mean, in what we call a Great Awakening in the U.S., a similar thing is happening in in Great Britain um, and and Wales, especially. But um, over there, it's generally referred to as the the Evangelical uh, Revival. Okay. Um, and so, so yeah, depending on um, 
yeah, I, I gave a very, very brief understanding of kind of that, that gap between the, uh, between Cranmer and the original reformers and, and Simeon, but whatever you whatever you think exactly of that period, I think that kind of way of thinking, the burst of energy um, is is what is going on with the Wesleys, and then continues on with with Simeon. Um, what one of the reasons I'm drawn to Simeon is because he remained within the Church of England, um, and so for so many who, um, or I mean, the example on on this side of this side of the pond, I mean, so many folks who. Um, were, were awakened in, in, the, in the Great Awakening, um, felt that it, then it was their duty to leave the churches that they had once been part of. Um, I mean, so you see a huge rise in, in Baptist and Methodist churches um, in the Great Awakening on this side of the pond, and, and a precipitous decline among Episcopal churches and a lot of Presbyterian churches, Congregationalist churches, um, because it was seen as, well, that my old church is dead and now I'm coming into this, yeah. this kind of new and, and living church. And, and, and that's obviously better. Um, and that's always been my issue with kind of later Protestantism with, I guess, like the, the strands of Protestantism that came, came out of the great awakening and, and the revivalist scene. Um, I think on one end, the positive is that it, it probably ignited a fervor for, the gospel um, that um, may, was not societally not there, and a lot of people were reached. But also on the flip side of that, I think it it, it puts such an emphasis. Uh, well, like you said, that uh, more established churches up to the time were now deemed like dead churches. They weren't living right. They were, um, you know, uh, it wasn't. Um, extreme uh what's the word spontaneous prayer extemporaneous prayer yeah uh that that now those were the hallmarks of the defining of uh, of what being yeah. a true, true christian was and that's always kind of the issue i've as as much as i call myself protestant um i know when a lot of people hear that word protestant that's the image that comes to mind and i and uh so i guess that's so when i when i see people like simeon and these people that stayed within the structures within the established churches i I'm always curious, like, okay, obviously this is a new flavor of, this is a, it's, it's a new flavor of evangelicalism than what you get in like the 16th century with Cramner and the Reformation. Uh, but it, obviously they're not, um, they're not jumping on to the fever you see everywhere else with the, you know, they're staying within um, established churches and trying to, um, you know, spread the gospel within there. So I'm, I'm wondering, how, how did they deal with kind of the tension between, like how did like 19th century evangelicals within the Episcopal Church and Church of England, how did they, where did they kind of um, hold the line or, or kind of, um, I guess, where did they see themselves as, as different uh, from other, I guess, Great Awakening Protestantism. I mean, from from everything else that was going on, what would be the? I mean, what was kind of their reasoning for for staying? I guess. I mean, I think it's, um, and, and this could, this could be a whole nother conversation that I. Would yeah, I don't know. My my, my yeah. brain. I'm just going where my mind is going. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think though there is, and I think it's I think it's a reality that we continue to see today, uh, especially within. Um, 
within Anglicanism. Um, in, in the Church of England, um, I mean, you, you call it a different flavor than, than the Reformers. Um, I mean, Simeon sees himself as a continuation of the Reformation. Right. Um, so, so it's not... Um, he, because of folks like like Cranmer and Latimer and and whatnot, he sees himself as recovering a lot of a lot of that, okay. and and so it's not something that needs that it's not something that doesn't have a place and needs a new place. Mm-hmm. Um, he says, "Well, we this is this is just a living this is just a living out of the prayer book and our formularies um, is is his general con, uh, contention." Whereas um, on, I mean, on this side of the pond, on the American side, you don't, you don't see that um, or it's not, it's not recognized as much. Um, And so um, I think that there's, yeah, I think there's an advantage, an advantage there um, on the church of England side in that um, this isn't, this isn't foreign um, to mm-hmm. Anglicanism, and I, I can I can hear the angry emailing pinning, pinning coming through already. But um, <laughs> this is this is uh, I mean Simeon Simeon thinks this is true Anglicanism. I mean this is just getting back to to what we were doing a uh, hundred so odd years ago. But we got waylaid by Laud and and by folks like that who promoted more of an Arminian or uh, kind of perspective on, on things. Right. Um, moral theology and yeah and, well, and, and that's that's one of the things that seems interesting to me about Simeon is that he's not the father of a revivalist movement like uh like the Wesley brothers um he's not even on the calvinist side of things um a revivalist like the puritans yeah he seems to me to hew pretty closely to a reformational model while having some of the hallmarks of the evangelical revival slash great awakening, which I think makes him, if not unique, then certainly rare. Um, Because at this time too, you have with the first great awakening, a very emotionalistic Christianity that's developed with, um, you know, the heart strangely warmed of Charles or John Wesley, right? And, and, and others that we see today echoed in, in American evangelicalism, the sort of, I've got to make a decision for Jesus. And this decision for Jesus that I'm making is so emotional that I have to go and cry at, at a makeshift altar or else I'm not really a Christian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, James and I were going to do an episode where we just, uh, talked crap on decision theology it'll happen where we where we talk through the unhelpful and unhelpy implications of decision yeah. theology yeah yeah it's more so like you said uh it, i i'm making my decision in such a way that i have to go cry at the altar it has to be like a, a public uh affirmation um you know, uh, conversion, yeah, conversion is, it's more than just the Holy Spirit's work on my heart, that it's actually something that has to be verified and testified before everyone as right. if baptism wasn't that sorry, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I think, I think, um, kind of to, to your point of why, why doesn't, or what, what prevents, uh, Simeon from kind of, 
I mean, sliding is 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 already a pejorative. So I don't mean yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, becoming by being more like uh, the Wesleys or being um, something like that. I think it's probably um, it's it. I mean, so some of some of Simeon's of weaknesses, I would say. Um, so he's he's born to a wealthy family. He never forgets that he's been born to a wealthy family. Um, he he dresses um, flamboyantly is maybe too strong of a word, but also maybe not quite too strong of a word. Um, he, he really cares. Yes. He, he's, he, he tends to, he tends towards vanity um, in, in his looks for one, he knows he's well-educated. Um, and so, and an, another, another thing that I've recently come across is um, John Newton, who's ministering, similar time period and you have the Clapham sect and William Wilberforce and those, um, those Anglicans of, of the evangelical stripe who are pushing for societal change, especially the abolition of slavery. And John Newton, um, author of most famously author of amazing grace forms this group in London called the eclectic society in which he gathers together different, um, mostly uh, Church of England folks, but a few other folks, lay, uh, mostly uh, clergy, but a few lay folks, and trying to work through some of some of the societal issues, really, or um, if not directly societal, kind of pastoral. How do we, how do we preach the, the doctrine of election to our people? Um, and and, and what, are, what are the good ways of doing that? And what are the bad ways of doing that? Um, and and Simeon is involved in some of those conversations, but he also he also stays at a distance. Um, and so, I think one of looking with a, with a close eye at Simeon, one of the things that I'm uh, disappointed—I mean, not that I really have—but <laughs> he's uh, Simeon never embraces the idea of abolishing the slave trade. Um, or or any anything like that, to the degree to the degree that Newton and and Wilberforce especially have. He, he kind of says, "Well, if you guys want to go do that, go and do that." But I'm not really going to get too concerned about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, and I, I, I consider that a, a weakness of his. But I think maybe that him him being wealthier um, and him being um, of, of higher class and being less concerned maybe with societal ills mm-hmm. allows him or, or is maybe what even keeps him in the church church of England. I mean, he's, he's not, he's not going to ride around the country on horseback like John Wesley does. I mean, just yeah. kind of destroying his body um, in order to preach the gospel. He's, he has, he has this church and he's going to work at what he's, where he's at. Um, He's there for 55 years. (laughs) He's there for 55 years. (laughs) And so, um, I mean, just as, so I think maybe like in the same way that uh, I always mix the Wesley's up, uh, same way that John, John Wesley's uh, really disastrous marriage actually serves the gospel because he doesn't want to be at home. And so he's riding around the country <laughs> preaching the gospel um, in, in maybe the same way, Simeon's unwillingness or, or uh, uh, discomfort 
with maybe being down in the trenches uh, of, of what's going on in the, in the uh, re- revivals allows him to, to uh, positively so the, contribute the way that he does. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's a really good insight because it shows that like God works through us and all our flaws, even, you know, Wesley through disastrous marriage, you know? Um, and of course we're, I mean, that, that, that should be the top priority of any Christian um, is their marriage, but, <laughs> but it's like, you know, God works through pe- people despite the flaws and despite maybe uh, Simeon's um comfort with with the high life um and like you said not wanting to get down in the trenches uh god still used that in a certain way you know um yeah fascinating the stories these people from the past bring um but but yeah so you know this we've kind of been in the 19th century for a little bit and um you being the president of efact that's of course uh, Evangelical Fellowship and the Anglican Communion that um, is a product of the 20th century. Uh, originally, of course, starts by evangelicals in the Church of England. And um, that brings us in, yeah, into the 20th century with 20th century evangelicalism, um, which was a, which was another, which is its own distinct thing. Um, Kind of, kind of talking about the characteristics of the nineteenth. What, what are, what are, what's, what's the twentieth century like? Um, I don't think we, I don't think we ever really spent any time on kind of twentieth century evangelical Anglicanism on any episode yet on Dr. Protest. I, it might be a good, good opportunity. To, I know, like you're, you're part of that history too, being a current <laughs> president of EFAC. I mean, so. Um, you yeah, are, I mean that's yeah. Again, it could be a whole, a whole other episode. I mean, so maybe dip. Right before I do that, I think it's necessary to dip back into the very, very last years of, of the uh, 19th century. Um, and, and when we talk about Anglicanism in the 20th century, um, there's, there's, there's a big gap between kind of a, a British understanding of, of evangelical Anglicanism and a U.S. understanding and and they kind of go their separate ways for a while, and then kind of kind of come back, but looking a little bit different. Um, and so, I, I'm going to focus more being on this side of the pond um, on the American American version. So I think the the connection, one of the connections that has to be made is a, a man named Charles McElvain, who um, who is uh, born originally born in uh, New Jersey. He attends West Point. Um, while at West Point, he um, he be, he has a, a similar kind of conversion experience, um, and and yet stays. He, he kind of stra- he's straddling the line between the Episcopal Church and the Presbyterian Church. Um, his roommate at West Point, oh, I should have is is one of the is one of the really famous um, kind of. Was it Reformed Presbyterians? Oh, okay. I know McIlvain converted Polk. We actually discussed that on a previous episode, and we didn't okay. have Polk class. So, yeah, he. No, it's it's one of the one of the Presbyterian guys whose names I'm blanking on. But um, so so uh, McIlvain is um, is is part of is becomes a chaplain at West Point. He serves there for a while. Is ordained. And goes and serves at some parishes, especially in New York, and um, 
and but later McIlvain becomes the first bishop of Ohio, um, and so he's he's sent to Ohio to do this uh, to do this missionary work. Really, I mean, it's still the the frontier, and and part of what he does, McIlvain um, is a really fascinating character, um, but. Strat, he, he also straddles both sides of the pond, um, often going back to England. And when he's back in England, he, he uh, meets and, and visits with Charles Simeon. And um, so he, he meets Simeon in 1830 and then in 1835. And he's, um, he, he's just, he, he's just enamored by, by Simeon and, and the work he's doing and, and Simeon becomes an inspiration for him. So, so McIlvain is serving as the, uh, as the Bishop of Ohio and, and in the late 19th uh, century, within American Anglicanism, um, you have the Episcopal Church, and and up until this point, there haven't. There's a very small group of folks who had left the Episcopal Church and tried to form what they called the Evangelical Episcopal Church, um, which um, was didn't really go very far. But what ends up happening at the end of the 19th century is um, the the group that is now known as the Reformed Episcopal Church um, has decided that with the rise of Tractarianism and then Anglo-Catholicism within the church and the rise of uh, liberalism with the church, that it's better to just, uh, as the more reformed folks, just to leave the, the Episcopal church. And so that happens. And, and when, when that does, uh, Mac McIlvain is committed to the Episcopal church to the end, um, but is, but is an old man um, and, and passes away. So tries to tries to encourage um, these these folks who want to leave the Episcopal Church, Church to stay with it, but is ultimately fails. And so McIlvain is really the last uh, evangelical voice within uh, within the Episcopal Church. And so then, what happens here in the states is um, in the early 20th century you see a rise in uh, Tractarianism or um, Anglo-Catholicism, as it's sometimes called. And you also have a rise of theological liberalism, which happens across, I mean, across the denominations. Um, but uh, McIlvain, sorry to interrupt, but he wrote yeah. a, a lengthy rebuttal, didn't he, of the, uh, um, I think it was a rebuttal he called of the Oxford theology when, when Anglo-Catholicism was, was really a, forming and becoming what it was in the 19th century uh he he wrote a uh he really wrote a scathing uh yeah <laughs> a scathing work yeah. on uh i'm pretty i'm pretty sure the word paper papish is uh in in that title i can't come up with it now but yeah right. he's he's strongly strongly convinced of the of the reformed nature of uh of anglicanism and of the episcopal church mm -hmm. and um there's another one where he as bishop, he refuses to consecrate any church that um, that has an altar instead of a table. Um, and so he's, um, I, I, there's, again, the, I, the angry emails will come any moment now. But, um, <laughs> well, but yeah, that's just an objective fact. That's what he did. If someone's yeah. angry about that, I mean, they can. 
he's a, he's a, he's a Charles when we see him in heaven. So yeah. but he's a stalwart defender of, of this. Um, but, but ultimately, I mean, kind of loses um, because um, loses both because of the rise of Anglo-Catholicism and the departure of the Reformed Episcopal Church, which doesn't allow for a reform movement because there's no, there's no longer a reformed or evangelical voice within the Episcopal Church. And so that continues, um, that continues for a while. And two, I mean, if you want a really long book about that, um, there's a book called Standing Against the Whirlwind um, that's all about uh, 19th uh, century um, evangelical Episcopalians. Um, there's also a shorter essay by a guy named uh, Giles Harp, who, if you guys haven't had on, you should have him on. He's a, a historian, um, Anglican historian, and he writes, um, I think his article is called The Strange Death of Evangelical Anglicanism yeah. or Evangelical Episcopalians. Um, um, so what happens is this kind of brand or party um, of, of Anglicanism disappears in in the u.s um and it really isn't doing real well in england either um you have again because of the tractarians uh because of more liberal theologies but does a better job of kind of um keeping on keeping on um Mm -hmm. in england so um so then really the next i mean the next person you have to turn to and and the I, I would argue the person that you have to understand to understand anything about 20th century uh, Anglicanism is John Evangelical Anglicanism John Stott. Yeah. Um, so John Stott is um, is 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 very similar to uh, Charles Simeon in a lot of ways. Um, they're both they're both lifelong bachelors. Um, both come from kind of uh, upper upper class backgrounds. Uh, both highly educated, and John Stott becomes uh, rector of All Souls Langham Place in in London in the uh, in the early early fifties, uh, late fifties. I can't remember exactly, but um, Stott really really becomes enamored with Simeon as well, and and looks to Simeon's example for a lot of what he does. Um, just becomes his his mentor, really, uh, from from beyond the grave. Mm-hmm. And so you have, and, and if you're not familiar with John Stott, I mean, I can't I can't do that justice in the time we have remaining. I would but. recommend uh, the the book I've read I read for him that I absolutely loved was uh, Christ in Conflict. Yeah. Which Christ I think was originally titled Christ, Christ the Controversialist. Yes. Um, and through his kind of exegeting and reflecting on the instances of Jesus coming in conflict, you know, usually with Pharisees or something like that, or just any, you know, he uses those moments to uh, to um, illustrate what the what the gospel is. He kind of uses those moments to draw from that uh um you know the essence of christianity um it's really a great work fantastic work yeah the 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 other one i would suggest is uh, the cross of christ um that's that's really uh stott's kind of seminal work um Mm -hmm. and exploring what the what the cross what what happens uh because of the cross Mm -hmm. and um and that's that's probably the book that 
Stott will most be remembered by, but but a prolific author. But he also um, Stott, like Simeon, sees the need to to train up clergy. Um, he sees opportunities within the Church of England that still exist. Um, even though they're not uh, not friendly to evangelicals necessarily, um, very similar to Simeon, Stott uh, focuses a lot on um, college ministry. I mean, starts a, is, is a big part of the uh, campus campus union movements that really take hold um, in the fifties and sixties, and and is also a strong proponent of uh, missionary work, hmm. and and Stott himself. Um, traveling all over the world um, to to lecture and, and teach and preach. Um, so John Stott in in the Church of England um, kind of serves this process of, of revitalization of of what it means to be an evangelical. And he, along, I mean, J.I. Packer is is right there alongside of him in doing that. Um, it, but here in the states, there's there's not that John Stott is in this. There is no John Stott in the states, right. um, and so so in the early '60s, Stott comes and visits the U.S. and um, starts meeting with some evangelical. Uh, I mean, you can't even really call them that, but start meeting with some Episcopalians. Um, maybe more conservative Episcopalians, if you want a, a label, because they're, yeah, there's just no really such thing as an evangelical Episcopalian. The, the one, the ones who weren't uh, enamored with Pike, those Episcopalians, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's who John Stock came in. Yeah. That worked and with. So, yeah. That's, that's, that's a good way of putting it. <laughs> um, so he come, comes over and and ultimately um, ends up um, there's a few other a few other kind of British evangelicals who, who end up coming and visiting and, and 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 getting in touch with different parishes and whatnot. Um, but there's but because because there hasn't been a, such a thing as an evangelical Episcopalian for almost sixty years, um, it's it's. It's, 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 it's foreign. Um, even though, I mean, it wouldn't have been foreign. He, Stott would have gotten along fine with Charles McIlvain. Um, but there's, there's no Charles McIlvain's there's no, uh, Charles Simeon's there's, there's nobody kind of like that. Um, and, and what ends up happening is, um, there are end up being some people kind of like that, but they're involved in the uh, what's what becomes known as the charismatic renewal movement in the Episcopal Church, and so um, just I mean the that that movement that's often is is cited started kind of Calvary Chapel out out here in California. Um, you see things like the Jesus People, um, the the uh, the um, beginnings of kind of contemporary Christian yeah. music and, and worship music that that type of, of thing is is happening even in, in the Episcopal Church. And I just I actually just met a man a few weeks ago, um, you know, a priest in the ACNA who just has an incredible story of how God um, reached him through the charismatic renewal movement and um, mm -hmm. just I mean just a miraculous story. So but what um, you're saying is basically that the 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 opportunity that kind of a classical evangelical expression had uh, and that it, that it had to to maybe come back in the Episcopal Church 
uh, was kind of eclipsed by the the charismatic renewal, which was going on at the same time. This is what the 60s, 70s, the charismatic. Yeah, I, I'm not sure eclipsed is quite the right word, but but in order for in order for a a more um, historically understood version of of evangelical Anglicanism to take to take root again in the in the U.S., it it has to it has to it has to dovetail with with this sure. um, with this charismatic movement that's taking sure. place. And I see so, that I see that a lot now in in whatever evangelical or so called evangelical pockets the Episcopal Church is is very much it's a kind of a dovetailing of those two things, which uh, it's, 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 yeah, it's an interesting uh, dovetailing. <laughs> so. Yeah. And so, and, and I think, and, and now I think you see evidence of that. If you're familiar with the idea of like the three streams uh, movement within, Ang- especially North American Anglicanism of that you can, you can simultaneously that the church needs to be simultaneously evangelical charismatic and anglo-catholic um and sometimes that's expressed as as evangelical being kind of word-based uh charismatic being kind of spirit spirit-led and anglo-catholic as being uh the liturgical component that kind of holds Mm -hmm. it together um i'm not i'm not convinced that's a healthy way of of understanding um that or, or moving forward with that but that's what that is what happens in North America is that um, because, because, uh, because McIlvain lost, because the REC leaves, um, there's just nothing there. And so, so Stott, who is um, to his credit is uh, I mean, to his credit and, or his detriment, depending on who you talk to is uh, very ecumenical in his approach. And so I, I would, I might be going on a limb and saying this, but I don't think that was Simeon's kind of ideal of like, oh yeah, we can be Anglican and charismatic or evangelical and charismatic, but um, but those are the people that are willing to work with him, and and so he does, um, and and out of that you have uh, EFAC USA. I mean, is is formed uh, for a long time. We were called Fellowship of Witness. Um, we we're part of um, part of the Trinity School for Ministries founding in the early yeah. 1970s. And, and so, um, so yeah, we wouldn't, we, we probably wouldn't be here now without um, that charismatic renewal movement, but also at the same time, I don't think it's, I don't think it's a, uh, the best way of understanding. Well, can, so. Yeah. And I was gonna say people can fault start all they want, I guess, for, for, uh, him willing to, you know, be ecumenical or participate with these different flavors that others would find, you know, problematic to, to do. But I mean, facing the 20th century starts up against, um, so many, I guess, cultural forces and just a type of a rapidly changed world. And I mean, a much, you could even say, yeah, well, definitely more secular world than the 19th century. And so Stott is interested in building friendships and building coalitions really um, for the sake of the gospel to be heard and for people to hear it. And so, I mean, I can see why he was willing to go these lengths uh, that like, I mean, McIlvain's just in a very different, McIlvain and Simeon are just in a very different time than, you know, the time Stott found himself in. So, 
Well, and it seems to me to be the case that with Stott, who has died in our lifetimes and, and lived That's a significant right. portion of his life in our lifetimes, um, Stott was trying to get all of these three streams to coalesce within Anglicanism because they shared a common commitment to Jesus that perhaps others within the Episcopal church did not, or they paid lip service to it, but really didn't. But the problem is, and this is the problem that we see in the Episcopal church today. We can say the name of Jesus. We can say the gospel, but we can be talking about diametrically opposed things. Mm -hmm. And I know for a fact that when I hear people in my sphere of influence speaking about the gospel, mo more often than not, they're conflating law and gospel mm -hmm. to use a, a Reformation um, dichotomy in effect. So if we can't agree on what the gospel is, it's going to be very hard to do ministry together, not impossible, but very hard because we're going to be fighting against each other. And this is one of the things that I feel like the ACNA has begun to realize as a convergence movement is that there are all of these different streams that are working together, sort of, but also can be working opposed to one another. Um, and so while it was a, uh, a noble cause that Stott was engaged in, it, it does, I, I don't mean to sound fatalist when I say it almost seems futile, um, unless we can agree about core concepts. Well, you just crashed, yeah. you just uh, brought the move all the way down. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think, but he talked to yeah, go too. Gosh, that's his mic drop. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> trying, trying to, trying to pick that up a little bit. But trying to work. Um, I think, I think part of, um, I think part of that is, um, and and you mentioned this before we started recording, James. And I, I won't, uh, I won't quote you exactly, but there's um, within understandings of what it means to be charismatic or what it means to be Anglo-Catholic or what it means to be evangelical are some are some presuppositions um and and um and i think that there's enough presuppositions within those three groups especially um i mean the if you want to i mean you have i mean you could throw in another kind of wing of anglicanism as being like a, a liberal or, or broad church understanding but but within the three that are trying to work within the acna for example explicitly um there's 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 points of understanding at the root of them that are contradictory to each other um and and so that's that will be that that struggle um and and that's part of um i think that's part of um yeah i i don't i don't, I don't want to i mean the Episcopal Church has, <laughs> that I'm gladly part of has has a lot of a lot of a lot of problems. I'm not trying to say that we we don't, uh, but maybe it's the maybe it's the log in my in my eye. I mean, the it's easier to see other people's problems, um, and and I think you've kind of gotten to the heart of it in terms of uh, the ACNA of um, 
of saying what what are the weaknesses of what it means to kind of try to value this this three streams movement um, or three streams understanding of Anglicanism and and so that's why um, while while like Stott I'm and I'm, I'm happy to kind of work with whoever I can whoever is willing to work with me um, there's I think there's also some some of those Anglo or evangelical um, distinctives that that need to be recovered and and need to be brought forth um and and that's part of a big part of what kind of evac usa is is Mm -hmm. doing i mean so our last conference um we talked a lot about liturgy i mean and um as uh, assume a a friend of the show i'm not that might be going too far you can edit that out later but um dean garwood anderson um up at uh, neshota house um, I was talking to him mm-hmm. and he, he said, well, you can, I mean, different strands of Anglicanism can get along pretty well, but you start going into liturgy and that's, that's where you're gonna, I mean, that's where you're going to see the cracks the, the quickest. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but, um, that's what we, we tried to do, um, just a month or two ago in our last conference of saying, what, what does it, what does it mean? to worship um, and uh, to use the liturgy in a evangelical and with an evangelical Anglican understanding. Um, and, and Zach Hicks, who um, just most recently uh, canon canon for worship and liturgy down at the uh, Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham um, was our main speaker and um, his, his conviction that his, his um, the crux of his argument is that, everything that we do liturgically and, and in worship, uh, we have to measure that against the, the gospel, the, uh, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Um, that's, and that's where we, and so does this practice help us understand that doctrine and live that doctrine better, or does it hinder that? Um, right. It does help and, that. Yeah. It helps us that I, I see so much of this as a continuation kind of in the spirit of Stott and, knowing that the doctrine of justification was so central to Stott and in his proclamation and in his writing. Um, it is, you know, we talk about the, the convergences and some of the problems they bring with these different uh, wings, but I think um, overall, uh, I, I think, yeah, it's, it's especially at EFAC and the conferences and the gatherings that EFAC has, uh, that message is so central in all my experience with them. And so um really grateful for that. And I don't think you're off by saying, I don't know if Garwood Anderson is a, a friend of this show, but he's a friend of mine. He's a friend of you, yeah. Zach. And I think you know him, James, right? Never met him. I uh, haven't had the pleasure, but I, I hope to at some point. He's a, a great guy. Um, and uh, yeah, our next episode with Stephen Chester, uh, Garwood would actually let's up Garwood's alley, not to like throw in a plug in for my, for our next episode, but yeah. Um, he, in, as far as a, uh, Pauline exegesis and uh, old versus new perspective as Garwood's kind of wheelhouse, but um, I'm glad he's part of uh, EFAC as well. I mean, he, even though he's a Dean of Neshota house, he is an evangelical. A lot of people don't. What a strange time we live in, isn't it? Um, (laughs) (laughs) One one thing I want to say to Zach, to perhaps, uh, well, I can't redeem myself. Right. But, but uh, perhaps for, to draw the mood back up. One of the things that you said that I think is so important and needs, it bears reiteration is that 
I'm fine with anyone calling themselves an evangelical if we can stand behind justification by faith alone. Mm-hmm. Yep. Because that is so central to our identity and that's so central to the Reformation. And it's the thing that the reformers fought and died for. That, yep. you know, you don't have to follow Bevington's five points or whatever, or you, you don't have to um, be a faithful follower of the 700 Club. Um, if we can stand behind justification by faith alone, I am, yeah, I'm, I'm good with that. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. So, yeah. Um, I know James, you have to get going. Um, I hope we're not having you run late, but, uh, nope. good. we'll, we'll, I guess we'll do a quick wrap, wrap up here. Uh, I just want to, so I guess Zach, if there's any, um, what, what's so, in the future uh, is uh, because I want to, you know, get listeners. I know we have some EFAC members, our listeners, but um, I'm, I'm so supportive of, and just excited about your work um, and in the work of EFAC. What's um, kind of on the horizon for EFAC? Yeah. So um, part of, and and you said it earlier, I mean, um, what, what we're trying to lean into, especially in this uh, coming year, is uh, what I've started saying t- tongue in cheek. Our, our middle name, um, I mean, fel- fellowship. I mean, that's yeah. um, if nothing else, kind of what I think the the main thing that EFAC serves to do is to gather people who can agree on just the doctrine of justification by faith alone. I'm I would I think that there's more that we could kind of tighten that down into. But especially that uh, within uh, whatever Anglican jurisdiction you're in. So we have members from the Episcopal Church, members from ACNA, uh, the UECNA, which is one of the continuing um, continuing jurisdictions. So we really bring a lot of different folks together, and um, and often oftentimes um, it's people say, "I come to this because that's." one time a year where I can be with a group of people who are really on the same page with me um, in, in my diocese and in, in, in where I'm at. Um, I just, I just don't have, I don't have that kind of support and encouragement. So, mm-hmm. so truly trying to, to lean into that um, this year, um, hoping to do, I mean, we do an annual conference um, usually by at this point. Uh, I mean, we're a few weeks past our, 2022 conference and usually at the end of the 20 and end of the conference we say next year we're going to be um and that didn't happen this year for a few different reasons so we're still still working on what next year's conference might look like um and um but but would welcome would welcome members uh, we have for 75 dollars a year you can be a member you can have uh get your snazzy pin Uh, face face private Facebook group or bounce ideas off of each other, sermon ideas, things like that. Um, And, and just being part of this, um, this year, we're also going to be introducing parish memberships. So parishes that are interested in, in being counted among uh, as an EFAC USA supporter. And um, what we're, we're asking for is half of half of 1% of your, uh, your operating budget. So that's um, for some, some of our larger friends that will be quite a bit of money and some, some of our smaller parishes that won't be as much money, but we'll welcome them. Uh, We also have one of the things that I'm really excited about is um, we are serving as a, um, 
kind of a clearinghouse of different um, positions that become available um, in in both in the ACNA and Episcopal Church, and connecting connecting clergy, especially, um, but also also laity, connecting clergy with um, churches that want that and are are, are looking for someone maybe of a more uh, evangelical has more evangelical convictions, and so we've been able to do that three or four times now in the last year and a half since we started that. So, um, so yeah, if you're just looking to connect with more like-minded folks um, with in whatever Anglican jurisdiction you're in here in the U S um, that's, that's really what we serve to do. So just kind of uh, working, working towards that and seeing, seeing where that will lead us. So. All right. And I'll put in our show notes, a link to evangelical fellowship in the Anglican communes website. Um, and for people to check out and to read further. So thanks, Zach. It's been a wonderful show. Um, God bless. Love to have you on again. So. Yeah, thanks for having me.